it's a humble attempt, and he made a humble attempt to to do something in particular. And uh, those two preceding phrases to promote visible union and explicit agreement. It's kind of key, and that's what I want to talk about here today. If I had to put a title on this little meditation, it would be Why United Prayer? Why United Prayer? And I'll be reading some from uh, Jonathan Edwards because he's such a genius, and I'm not going to be able to say it better than him. And um, But I would like to turn our attention to Acts chapter 1, very familiar passage, and we're going to explore, maybe refresh ourselves on the reason why we are doing what we are doing. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this that we call united prayer? Do you know? Um, perhaps you haven't given it much thought. Why have corporate prayer meetings at all in a church? These uh, attempts of, of these other brethren to have these organized prayer meetings, what's the point? Why not just tell people, God's people pray? And that's fine, and we should do that, but is there anything of, of any benefit in organizing united prayer times in a church context, a church prayer meeting. Any benefit at all? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why united prayer? Well, Acts chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Simply, And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. So this passage here communicates to us what happened days after Jesus ascended back into heaven. The disciples were told to tarry in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father be sent upon them, which is the Spirit. And so these all came into an upper room, that same room where they were on that night of the betrayal, and they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. All these different individuals. I just have very three very uh, simple remarks about this, and then I'll read a quote from uh, this paper by Jonathan Edwards. The first one is, let's just look at that word, all. These all continued. All. Who all? Well, you have the list of disciples up there, and that all by itself could be explored, and you can see the various personalities in these disciples. You can see, if I can say it this way, the various ranks. You have, you know, Peter, James, and John. You have the one Thomas, who was now 
forever known as Doubting Thomas. You have the Sons of Thunder there. You have Simon the Zealot. You have these variety of brethren. And we've talked about this many times before on this call. And the beauty of a United Prayer meeting like this is that we are actually all very different. And you might think that that's a, like a handicap. You may feel yourself so insufficient or inferior. You may have an inferiority complex that you just wish that you were like somebody else or that and I've often thought that you know you hear some of these these great men that you respect so much in the Lord and you just wish that you could be like them well god made you like you peter is not john in fact i would say they are probably on the opposite sides of the spectrum personality wise John, though he was younger and faster, he ran to the tomb, but he just stopped outside of it. He, he, was, he, he, had, he was not so bold as to just rush right in. Peter, coming up afterwards, he just ran right in, ran right into the tomb, looking for Jesus. Uh, that, in a nutshell, just shows a little bit of their personality. Peter is more you know, impetuous and um, just a little bit more forceful in, in many ways, uh, speaking off the cuff and saying things he shouldn't say. And, and you know, you have the sons of thunder that would be the same way. So anyway, you have this variety, which is actually a beautiful thing. It is. It's a variety of personalities, a variety of stations in life, and it's a variety of Maturity, I would say, even. You have there the brothers, his brethren, verse 14, mentioned. And if you remember back in John chapter 7, verse 5, it actually uh, refers to his Jesus' earthly brothers as being unbelievers. They were not believers. They didn't believe on him. His own brothers. But here they are. They came up a little bit later. So they were not with Jesus in his ministry all just since day one. They were unbelievers and they became believers later on, maybe even after the resurrection. So as far as spiritual maturity, perhaps they were very, very uh, young in the faith. But then you have the women. And back in those days, you know, yeah, the, the women were considered very inferior in many ways. But they were there, praying together, which I'm sure was a, a wonderfully different situation. And then, of course, you have the mother of Christ himself, the mother of Jesus herself, excuse me. She was there as well. The word all simply gets us thinking about the variety of individuals and their personality and their station and their maturity, but the unity that they enjoyed there. They were all there. Second thing maybe we talk about is the word continued. They all continued. I took a, a minute to look this up. The Greek word there is proskartero, if I'm pronouncing that right. Proskartero. And it has a very rich meaning. 
it talks about a devotedness. Uh, don't just um, pass over that word. They these all continued. You know, they're just continuing on. No, there is a devotedness. There is a steadfast attentiveness to something. Unremitting was another word. Unremitting, which has the idea of relentless, unabating. Not fainting, persevering. It's helpful to be able to uh, import some of these words uh, when you think of the words that the Bible uses because it just creates so much more rich meaning. I mean, think of it. Not fainting, unremitting, relentless, persevering. That's what's contained in this word. These all continued. And that is, I trust, how we feel sometimes. When you talk about a daily prayer meeting, friends, there has to be an element of, of that, a devotedness, a steadfastness, a relentlessness, not fainting. That's probably the hardest for me. Um, some passages that that came up in relation to this, same word, Acts 2.46, and they continuing daily, the disciples continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They continued daily. Acts 6.4, the verse that we base our foundations conference around. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Romans 12, 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Same word, continuing instant in prayer. Finally, Colossians 4, 2. Continue in prayer. Same word. Continue, don't give up, be relentless, don't faint, persevere in prayer. That's the command from Scripture. And watch in the same with thanksgiving. So there's that word continue. Proskartero, the Greek word. The last thing I'll say about this is the one accord. One accord. These all continued with one accord. The Greek word there is homothemidon. Homothemidon. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Homothemidon. It means simply one mind, one passion, one accord. Agreement. And so now you can get an idea of why Jonathan Edwards was... So big on this idea, even putting it in his title. A humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union. And so the part that I'm going to read to you here is simply this. There were some objections to his proposal in his day. Amazing as that may seem to you. Who would object to such a proposal? Well, 
there were objections, and he answers them. And it's just really fun to read his rebuttals. One of them was an objection of, well, an agreement like this, it's what, what the word that they used was whimsical. That simply means that it's, this is tacky. Why are we doing this? It's, it's uh, silly. It's whimsical. Or another objection was that it was pharisaical. And you could see how that, okay, you could see how people might think that. This is pharisaical, what you're doing. Silly or pharisaical. And I'm just going to read a little part of it because, I mean, it goes on for pages, but here's what he says. The, so the objection is essentially, are you saying somehow that uh, if we have more prayers all at the same time, at the same place, somehow that's more effective? Somehow, just by the sheer force of that, God will hear more or th- there would be a better chance of response versus a single man praying? So he answers, Though there be no reason to suppose that prayers will be more effective, merely from the circumstance that different persons pray exactly at the same time, yet there will be more hope, reason to hope that prayers for such mercy will be effective when God's people are very much in prayer for it and when many of them are united in it. If therefore agreeing on certain times for prayer be a likely means to promote a union in prayer, then there is more reason to hope that there will be effective prayer for such a mercy on those certain times. But that agreeing on certain times for united extraordinary prayer is a likely and proper means to promote and maintain such prayer, I think will be easily evident to anyone that considers the matter. If there, so listen to this, if there should be only a loose agreement or consent to it as a duty or a thing fit and proper, that Christians should be much in prayer for the revival of religion, without agreeing on particular times, how liable would such a lax agreement be to be soon forgotten? And that extraordinary prayerfulness, which is fixed to no certain times, be totally neglected. To be sure, distant parts of the Church of Christ could have no confidence in one another that this would not be the case. That God's people should have a general agreement that this is a good and proper thing. And could they from this only have the light grounds of dependence that God's people in various parts of the world would indeed act unitedly? How much more promise would it be if they should not only hear that the duty in general was approved of, in other words, yeah, we, we believe this is a good thing, but also promising, how promising would it be if they should not only hear that the duty in general was approved of, but also that particular times 
were actually fixed for the purpose. And an agreement and joint resolution was come into that they would, unless hindered, set apart such particular seasons to be spent in this duty from time to time. For God's people in distant places to agree on certain times for extraordinary prayer, wherein they will unitedly put up their request to God, is a means fit and proper to be used in order to the visibility of their union in such prayer. Union among God's people in prayer is truly beautiful. It is beautiful in the eyes of Christ, and it is justly beautiful and amiable in the eyes of Christians. And if so, then it must needs be desirable to Christians that such union should be visible. If it would be a lovely sight in the eyes of the Church of Christ, and much to their comfort, to behold various and different parts of the Church united in extraordinary prayer for the outpouring of the Spirit, then it must be desirable to them that such a union should be visible, that they may behold it. But the agreement and union becomes visible by some external visible circumstance. And he goes on to say, the external visible circumstance, there's two, time and place. That is how you can see a unity, time and place. So that if you cannot join at the same place, which was in their case, I mean, they're scattered all over the world, they're not, they didn't have Zoom, right? At least at the same time, then there is a, there is a, a visibility of union if you agree at the same time. Uh, he just goes on and on. But he, he, he makes a big point about the beauty of the unity of Christians in prayer. And he goes on to say, uh, and I'll just end with this, to this common sense leads Christians in all countries, and the wisdom of God seems to dictate the same thing in appointing that his people in their stated and ordinary public worship every week should manifest this union and communion one with another as one holy society by offering up their worship on the same day for the greater glory of their common Lord and the greater edification and comfort of the whole body. So why united prayer? Why united prayer? He goes on to say, not only is it something that will promote more prayer, so it actually promotes more effectiveness because there's a promotion of more prayer, but he actually goes on to say that it's a help to the brethren. It's, it animates, it encourages, and it tends to these things. And surely we can say the same thing. When we pray together here, there is a tremendous sense of encouragement, is there not? So we'll, we'll leave it at that. We considered Acts chapter 1, 13 and 14, where these men and women came together in the upper room to pray. They prayed unrelenting. They were all there, and they continued in one accord. Edwards makes the same case, and these attempts to gather God's people to pray together, they're good attempts. 
every church that makes an attempt to gather God's people together is a good attempt. And we should we should make every attempt for united prayer.